Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I've been up all night watching the World Cup, so bear with me. I'm not even sure if I'm going to get through the next few minutes. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is our editor, Vivian Kelly. Hello. And our features and opinion editor, Josie Tutty. Hello. Coming up later, we're taking the Umbrella cast on the road to our sports marketing summit. But first, the week's topics. Triple M and Sky News in hot water over gender politics. Domain looks to Google for its new CEO. And Grant Denyer's Logie's shock. So first, gender politics were all over the headlines this week, with both Sky News and Triple M getting into hot water by comments on their shows. And just at this point, a content warning. We are about to play you a clip from Triple M. It is quite hard to discuss this, uh, the comments intelligently without the context, but equally the context that should you choose to carry on listening, you're about to hear is pretty gross. So if you don't want to hear it, then feel free to fast forward this podcast by about one minute from now. So this is what went out on Triple M Melbourne over the weekend. Oh, what are you doing? You talk about your wife's sweet. Sweet. You all the, the, the obstetrician just uh, has a little feel and makes sure that they're starting to dilate and puts a couple of fingers up and just checks. Oh, checks oh, the, oh, it's, it's a procedure before birth, baby. Just Sorry. Joey was a bit disturbed because the, the doctor was a good looking rooster. Yeah, he's not bad. About 40 looking. years of age. Yeah. And he did the sweep with his fingers and then licked his fingers up. That's disturbing stuff. So, Viv, yuck. Yeah, it's pretty bizarre uh it just seems unnecessary on a sporting based station anyway to be going into that level of detail and making such a a crude joke i've i've heard the audio clip i haven't heard the wider conversation to know why it was even a topic on the station but needless to say it didn't receive a great reception from from listeners almost immediately there was backlash and Right, rightly so. It was just such a bizarre way to approach a sensitive topic. And almost immediately he was fired. Yes, he was, look, you know, credit to Triple M. They moved very fast in realising just how serious this was and uh, asking him to, to leave the broadcast and leave the station. So he was gone within a few minutes of those comments. Um, but equally, I think a lot of the commentary was around, well, what what culture and environment creates a sort of atmosphere where that conversation, you know, that sort of laddish, you know, it's an overused phrase, but locker room talk exists in the first place. And it wasn't like he said it and then there was hushed silence and everyone was shocked. Everyone laughed and there was about three or four other men in the room and you could hear them all laughing. No one seemed to be aware at the time that he'd said something wrong. No one challenged it. That's right. I And funnily enough, I, I happened to be listening to Triple M Sydney, so completely different team in the build-up to, oh, I forget which game it was. It could maybe have been State of Origin, but something in the last few days. Nowhere near as bad as that. But again, it was full of innuendos about, oh, he likes, they were talking about, you know, birds. He likes a cock or two and cock or two <laughs> oh and all of that stuff. And it, it it certainly feels like there's that sort of culture of um, what people would have probably called banter at some point. It's interesting, though. Barry Hall, who we're discussing here, who was let go from Triple M, 
he's known for being this personality type. He's known for his aggressive on the field behavior when he was a star AFL player, including bad Barry Hall. punching people out and then later admitting that his punches could have killed people. So in one way, it's almost, is it a talent problem for Triple M? Who are they employing and and should they really be surprised when this sort of thing happens? My other question though is, are latte sipping Chippendale bubble that we're in, we're not Triple M's list. Well, actually, I am Triple M's listener. I listen to a lot of Triple M classic rock, but um, we're we're not generally Triple M's target audience. Are we being oversensitive? Does does the audience actually care? You're right. I'm I'm not their target audience, and I don't listen to Triple M. But I'm also not somebody who complained or tweeted about it. I found out about it because I read that Barry Hall had been fired. The immediate reaction was from people who were listening live and picked up on it straight away. I think if this had taken days and days to come about, we could blame the Twitterverse and we could blame the inner city hipsters. But the fact that it was so immediate shows that this wasn't the internet getting carried away with the outrage brigade. It was people listening who are presumably Triple M's target audience who thought it wasn't good enough. But to give Triple M some more credit, and of course it was also difficult because we're in a radio ratings holiday, so it's none of the normal presenters on the uh, on, on, on the weekday shows on most stations. Um, they did give Michelle Laurie a good platform for a very grown-up discussion on the, I think it was the Monday morning, I, 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 I listened to the catch-up audio on it. It became a really mature, positive conversation. Yes, and Michelle has said that it was the best sort of moment of her broadcasting career, being able to come on and have that really robust and adult conversation about what happened. So I guess Triple M are taking the right steps, but is this just a case of it's going to blow over and happen again in a few months' time? And Josie, that was something that Adam Ferrier contributed to as well. Yeah, so Adam Ferrier from Think About wrote an opinion piece about the situation. Um, and one thing that he made quite clear was the fact that Triple M even gave those two 10 minute interviews to Michelle Laurie and the CEO of Our Watch, Patty Kinnersley, um, was, was a really positive move for the station and something that probably wouldn't have happened even, say, five years ago. And an opportunity, as, as he put it, for, for men to try and be better. But the men of media did have more to deliver at the weekend. Sky News's Outsiders show decided that it would be a great idea to get David Lionhelm in as a guest. Now, uh, Sarah's, um, this is not a criticism, but Sarah is known for liking men. Um, the rumours about her in Parliament House are well known. So uh, I just said, well, stop shagging men then, Sarah. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. If you think they're all rapists, why would you shag them? So the context of uh, that clip um, was also repeated as a claim on the on-screen super, the caption you see on screen. Um, and what you can't uh, see because this is audio is that um, as uh, Lion Helm was making those comments, a co-host Rowan Dean was laughing along to, to your earlier point, Vivian, around you often get this sort of again slightly jargony but the uh, the atmosphere of enabling going along um a few hours afterwards sky news apologized suspended a producer and the next day uh, rowan dean and co-host ross cameron had this apology to make I want to make it clear that but uh apology is sincerely made by both rowan and i and we could have uh and should have handled it better but uh we will do better and we just felt it was important at the outset to 
set the record straight. So, uh, Viv, were you, have you been convinced by the apologies from Sky News? It takes a lot to convince me that an apology is genuine when it comes after so much outrage, including petitions and all sorts of things and politicians getting involved and threats of lawsuits. You know, when, when you get an apology after a threat of a lawsuit, I struggle to find it genuine, but perhaps it is. What I take issue with is if you watch it, as you say, it did feel like there was an enabling culture going on. They knew that the senator was going to come on there and double down on his comments about Senator Hanson Young. He was never going to come on and say, do you know what, I was wrong and here's the lessons I've learned and here's how politicians, men and leaders can be better for women. He was always going to fuel it. The, the show relied on that. So, so Josie, the other thing I want to ask you about is at the moment the only people who seem to have really suffered any kind of career difficulties in, in this particular, particular aspect is the as yet unnamed producer of the show, the person who put up the caption on screen, repeating what David Lionhelm had just said, um, reportedly a, a 25 year old uh, female producer who's helping out from another show. Can't verify that at all, but certainly it explains that the, Certainly, it suggests that the uh, the main person who's suffering from this right now is a young woman. That doesn't seem particularly fair to me. Yeah, so the reports of having female have not been verified, but either way, it's the producer is a young, unknown person who essentially was just copying what was being said on the TV. So honestly, it wasn't like they were writing anything outrageous. They were just repeating what had been said. Um, and this differs from the Barry Hall situation in that the presenters don't really seem to have had much sort of punishment at all. Um, so it'd be interesting to see where this one goes. And I suppose the other question about that as well is what we don't know is, you know, were there wider responsibilities for the producer? Should she have been, and I don't know if they wear earpieces, but let's assume they do. Should she have been speaking in Rowan Dean or Ross Cameron's ear and saying, you need to get us out, you know, you need to reverse us away from these comments and challenge them right away. Um, is that one of the, you know, is that one of the wider duties of a producer? And that was part of the issue as well, potentially. I would not want to be a Sky News producer. That's all I'm going to say. Certainly not on that show. Um, Viv, let me, let me put another aspect to this to you. I sometimes think a lot of this is pantomime. You, you get these right wing commentators who to a certain extent are performers, you know, I should probably declare an interest. Um, Rowan Dean, before he sort of became this sort of commentator, editor of the Spectator Australia, AFR columnist, all of those things. He, he was a executive creative director at URRSCG or what's now Havas. And in my days at B&T and um, early days at Mumbrella, I had quite a lot to do with him. And he is a lovely man. He's a very nice man, but I don't think he's the man that I see on screen. And I can think of other examples of that with Sky News as well, where you meet the person off air and they're a lot lovelier than they are in the in in the written word or the broadcast. Hey, I even once met Andrew Bolt in reception at the ABC and he was thoroughly charming. Um, does it, if it is a performance, if some of this is a performance, does that matter? Does it make it better, worse? Well, my question to you was going to be, does it matter? Because... Even if it's fake, if they're putting 
that out into the universe, it still exists and people aren't necessarily absorbing it knowing that it's fake and knowing that it's a performance. Uh, I met Annabelle Crabb, who's a bit of a commentator and ABC personality as well, and she's well known for being quite critical of various politicians and she told me when we were sitting on the bus one time that actually Tony Abbott is really, really lovely and she gets along with him really well but she still really disagrees with his politics and what he did when he was in charge of this country. And then Annabelle and I had quite a bizarre discussion where I was saying, but does it even matter that he's nice and that he's nice to the people that he cares about and that he does do this volunteer firefighting? If he's doing things that you think are awful, even if he's just doing it to secure political points, those things are still awful. So if Rowan is lovely, that's fantastic. But if he's performing and people don't know it, he's still fueling quite a negative right-wing view of the world. And one other, one other aspect to this, uh, a brand found itself sucked into this as well, which was uh, Qantas. Because if you, you go to the Qantas lounges, you'll see Sky News playing. And of course, that, um, that Sunday morning, it happened to be playing Outsiders. And it feels like this is probably where the story began. Um, it looks as if Shannon Malloy, the journalist who first tweeted about it, ex-News uh, Corps journalist, now working for Amazon, um, was in the Qantas lounge at the time, took a screenshot with that uh, on-screen caption, um, and has since started a change.org petition calling for Qantas to put something else on their screens. Presumably, if you want a, a 24-hour news thing, it would have to be uh, the, the ABC News 24. Um, do you think this is one that Qantas is just going to sit at? This is one that I think could possibly be accused of the inner city bubble getting involved. Uh, I think people are right if they don't want to view Sky News in the Qantas lounge, they have the right to tell Qantas that. But I think I have seen quite a bit of commentary where people are saying you wouldn't normally be watching Sky News anyway. The people who are signing this petition are not going to be in Qantas lounges. They're just jumping on the bandwagon. So unlike Triple M, where I think the outrage very much came from those people listening at the time, this Sky News petition is being criticised for people who weren't even watching, don't even know what it's about, but just want to have something to complain about. It certainly feels like Qantas is going to sit it out for the moment. They issued a one-sentence statement about it, which was something along the lines of, we understand Sky News is investigating. So it doesn't feel like they're particularly panicked at the moment, but maybe they're just hiding it well. This week, Google Managing Director Jason Pellegrino was appointed Domain CEO. Now, Viv, you were originally from real estate world, so this is up your street. Do tell. That makes it sound like I was born as a real estate agent. Uh, look, I do have a background in property and real estate journalism. And one thing that is well known by lots of agents is that even though Domain is the second player in terms of real estate listings, they do play second fiddle to REA groups, realestate.com.au. Anthony Catalano, who was leading Domain until January, had unrivaled relationships with real estate agents he was known by them, he was liked by them, and him leaving undoubtedly would have had a massive, massive impact on Domain, even though they deny that it did, uh, going so far as to say it had no impact whatsoever. So appointing someone from a, a tech giant is quite an interesting move. It is an ASX-listed company now, Domain, so maybe they're looking for more sort of business and tech 
skills, but it'll be really interesting to see how agents respond to him because Catalano is a relationship man. And do you think some of it as well was with an eye to the ASX? You know, you you announced that the boss of Google is coming over. That appears that feels like a safe pair of hands. So do you, do you think some of it is you're 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 buying the, in some way the Google brand? Definitely. And and they definitely needed a safe pair of hands. The majority shareholder of Domain is still Fairfax. And soon after Catalano resigned to uh, spend time with his family, Fairfax's own papers were talking about how Catalano had allegedly allowed a problematic workplace culture to exist and to sort of fester. Now, Specific allegations weren't levied at him. He wasn't accused directly of anything, but things like cocaine at staff parties, problematic language towards women, a boys' club, were allegedly part of the culture that existed at Domain. In an ASX-listed company, that's even more problematic. You've got so many more people to answer to and so many transparent corporate responsibilities. Having someone from Google with that pedigree and that sort of brand reputation definitely feels like a deliberate move. And they don't come cheap. Well, he didn't come cheap, but he is actually on the same package that Catalano was on, which is a base salary of $1.2 million. He also gets a $500,000 bonus for sticking around until uh, December. And then there's all sorts of short-term financial and longer-term financial Uh, incentives, which just makes the pay packet uh, very, very, very alluring. And that just leaves one other question. Who replaces Pellegrino at Google? And finally, for this week's news, Viv, you drew the lucky straw. You stayed up to watch the Logies on Sunday night. I feel like you're saying that with a bit of sarcasm, but it was actually a problem of my own making in that I volunteered to do it. Uh, Which was very kind because I was on weekend duty. (laughs) I'm one of those very rare breeds of people who actually enjoys the Logies despite how frequently it makes me cringe and despite how culturally irrelevant it can be. And you're a member of a shrinking um, group as well. I definitely am. According to OzTam's preliminary overnight uh, metro figures, 851,000 people tuned in, which is its lowest uh, viewership number to date since the metrics system launched. But events like this still manage to generate social media bars and people are still talking about it. So even if I was the only sad sap in Bondi up on Sunday night until 11.30 watching it, people are still all aware that Grant Daniel won gold and they're still aware that Burton Newton put his foot in it. And so you don't have to watch the whole 1,000 hours to know what happened. And Mumbrella super fans can look at the timestamp for when Viv posted the article and understand <laughs> her pain. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was quite late. Um, it was a lovely speech from Grant as well, wasn't it? I wasn't particularly in a, in a very good place. Um, I wasn't very well. I was in a bit of a hole. I was pretty sad. I was a bit lost. It gave me my mojo back. It gave me my confidence. It gave me some courage. I rebuilt myself. It was. uh, He is obviously the host of a game show, Family Feud on 10, that's 
about to be axed. So people obviously had lots to say about how can our most popular personality be someone who's on a show that's not popular enough to stay on the air. And of course, Tom Gleeson piled in on that as well, didn't he, with hard chat? Yes. So Tom Gleeson did an interview with Grant Denyer and sort of as a joke, as many things with Tom Gleeson start out as like Sophie Monk becoming the Bachelorette, he joked that he would help Grant win gold and got on board and did all sorts of media interviews and it ended up happening. But one thing that I thought was really interesting about this and I hadn't thought of it this way is I thought it was quite sweet and and quite funny that they'd they'd done that for Grant. But interestingly enough, Hollywood heavyweight Russell Crowe weighed in on Twitter uh, where all good debates start and sort of said that he really disagrees with what Tom Gleeson did and it stole the award from a more deserving Tracy Grimshaw or Amanda Keller and it was an example of the boys club laddie culture all piling in and helping elevate a man to the top so I definitely hadn't thought of it that way I thought it was more subverting the logies and and showing how rife for sort of problematic voting practices it is but I guess that's another way to think about it. Did did Grant win because of the boys' club? Did Grant win because he's our most popular personality on television? I don't I don't know the answer to that. But it reminds me a bit of back in the UK at some point some terrible winner from the x factor or something similar was expected to go number one for the christmas number one back when that was a thing so people decided that they were going to try and subvert it by uh by instead getting rage against the machine to number one um which um they successfully did and subverted the process and i i mean it feels to me like you know gleason didn't didn't care about daniel winning he wanted to poke fun at the the something of a joke that he felt that the Logies were. Yes, and and I think that that seems to be the case throughout the industry. There are certain people who are known for not respecting or liking the Logies, such as Will Anderson, and he's sort of jumped on and sort of said this is very amusing as well. So it's all these people who think it's a problematic and pompous ceremony who just wanted to show how easy it is to sort of manipulate. I mean, Channel 7 is our number one rating network and they won one award which was for home and away's uh stalwart ray ma channel 10 won the most awards and you know we all know the ratings and financial troubles that they've had over the past year or two so i just i'm not sure that grant is our most popular personality on tv but i'm not sure that gold logie winners always are and that's where we leave our news chat for today. Thank you, team. I'll let you all get back to the news desk. Thanks. Thanks. We're backstage at the Mumbrella Sports Marketing Summit at the Four Seasons Hotel in Sydney. With me, Kyle Bunch, Managing Director of Social for RGA, based in Austin, Texas. Our, uh, our keynote this morning... Uh, Kyle, actually, I think before we get into sort of talking about sport, which is your your one of your dual passions, I guess, along with social. Uh, firstly, I'm I'm fascinated. What is Austin like as an agency base? <laughs> so you know, it's it's a really rapidly growing place, but admittedly, it's a it's a smaller market than what you would see, you know, across a lot of the rest of the U.S. and really our global footprint. Um, you know, we really established there because the talent base, you know, you've got a really attractive young talent base with a big university there. Um, and then you also have, it's, you know, for people, if you're working in New York or LA or San Francisco and you're thinking, Hey, it's time for a family, buy a house. 
it's probably not happening for you in those markets somewhere that you want to be. You go to Austin, suddenly, you know, there's room to have, have the, live the dream, you know, and raise the family. And so it's been, you know, really nice for us in terms of being able to build a, a good talent base. Um, you know, I'd say admittedly that, you know, it is a small agency market, which is great in that I think it's probably in, you know, you, you would maybe think that makes it more competitive. It's kind of, you know, actually kind of leads to a, hey, we're all in this together. We want to see this become a truly global city. And so uh, it has a really great kind of spirit of collaboration. I'm sure some of that is the sort of friendliness of Texas kind of combining but uh it's it's been really fun over the five years we've been there to see it grow and is there is there sort of an element of it as well i sort of hope that you can sort of uh, have clients who aren't necessarily local clients but just want world-class work and it's a chance to to build an interesting hub away from east coast or west coast Uh, absolutely i mean to be to be frank if you're you know in austin trying to subsist on only local clients if you're not a really small boutique, it's probably not going to be possible. I mean, Austin's growing. You've got places like Whole Foods that are really compelling. Um, and, and obviously post Amazon, you know, very interesting as clients, but, but there aren't a lot of those. And so, you know, for us, it's, you know, popping over to Dallas and Houston, massive centers, Atlanta's a short flight away, Miami. Um, so it's really, you know, getting to that part of the country. The other thing I'll say that, that, and I, you know, anybody from anywhere in the country can certainly do their research and do these things, but, at these times in America, um, when you're, you know, there's, there's this huge divide between the coasts and, you know, you kind of heard it throughout the ad industry when everybody woke up the next day after the election and went, wow, we really don't know the country the way we thought we did. Um, Austin gives us, you know, you're on the ground in a place while Austin's a progressive city, the rest of Texas is absolutely not. Um, and so being able to be in that spot where you're, you're getting a different perspective on how people live, you're kind of seeing something that's maybe more representative of a lot of the audiences that we need to reach. Well, let's talk a bit about RGA as well. It strikes me that probably if, if there was a single piece of work that defines the agency, it is for a, a, a sporting client, I suppose, really, which was Nike Plus. Where did that come from and what was it that made it so defining for the agency at the time well i think first off I, you know i would give credit to you know and, and i came in right after nike plus i was one of those who was like "Ooh, i want to be part of an agency that does something like that but i you know having worked with a lot of the the you know clients who made that happen as well as the team you know by that point we had worked with nike for five six years we had built a lot of trust and a really great you know what i would say was you know partnership versus sort of client agency relationship um and then obviously it didn't hurt that you know nike had this amazing relationship with apple because if you remember the first iteration was a chip in a shoe that talks to an ipod ipod feels so dated adorably dated now um but yeah it was uh you know it was really this byproduct of of three three groups coming together but you know ultimately it was you know trying to come up with a unique answer to a brief, which was, you know, as Nike was, you know, battling to stay in a, you know, stay competitive in a, you know, increasingly challenging running shoe market. How do we, you know, ultimately help runners kind of get over those barriers? You know, we can go after all the hardcore runners, but there's only so many of those. And it's really, how do we take those casual runners? You know, Nike's ethos is if you have a body, you're an athlete. So how do we get the people that want to want to get there, want to be runners, but get them over those barriers. And we found that by giving them that data, giving them that encouragement, that was a really powerful way. So, you know, in some ways it was really just kind of taking a slightly novel approach to a somewhat standard brief. And do you think the likes of Fitbit would have ever followed without the path that had been set? You know, it's, it's, it is an interesting question. You know, I, I think a lot of times you look at, you know, technology and development for years and, you know, or, or, you know, different people who kind of arrive at the same conclusion in different places. So I, I, it's hard for me to say, oh, Fitbit would have never happened. Um, if nothing else, I would imagine that Fitbit benefited from 
some general kind of awareness and education that when you've got, you know, Nikes and Apples of the world putting something out there, you've, you've kind of created a customer expect or consumer expectation around this is a category and then Fitbit can step in and provide a, an alternative and a different solution. Well, let's get into some of the topics that you, you, you covered at your, your, your presentation here at the, the uh, sports marketing summit. One of the things I found really interesting was the insight into how the sports, the viewing sports fan has changed. What is their behavior now? Well, I, so here's, here's, you know, we've, we've done quite a bit of work around, you know, sport with, with media, with the leagues themselves. And, you know, a lot of the research that we see basically tells us, you know, I think there was a period of, oh my God, younger sports fans are leaving, you know, they're not into it. They're, they're not watching TV. And in a lot of cases, what we find is they're spending more time with the sport than the person who's sitting down and watching the games on TV because it's throughout their day. It, like we said, it's sort of second screening. So I might be watching a game and consuming that much more around the sport through my phone and all this. So, you know, they're, they're there. They're just, as we see across media, the attention spans aren't quite the same as what they once were. And is the mix between live and catch up changing at all? A little bit. I think, you know, certain things in the, especially, you know, or particularly in the States like fantasy football sort of change the, do I need to see it live? I don't necessarily care. Or just give me those quick highlights. You talked about the four minute sports fan. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we've, you know, in the work we do with ESPN, we sort of termed it that four minute sports fan because, you know, when they were thinking about live tune in, it's like, okay, these guys are absolutely following the games. They just may not actually take that next step to tune in, you know, to pull up their remote and tune in. So, um, you know, how you kind of, how you basically create that, you know, FOMO around the live experience. How do you make it that, yeah, you can get all the clips, but the, there's the in-between moments. And especially, you know, the NBA is great because you've got the cultural angle, who's sitting courtside and what's going on and who's, you know, who's, who's, you know, which two celebrities are jawing or which celebrity is literally talking trash to the guy on the court. Um, so I think that's where you try to really build the, the event, you know, that sort of must have in the same way that, you know, we use the Netflix analogy in the same way that Netflix does such a good job of putting out the whole show dropped and, oh my God, you better watch it this weekend or you're going to get things spoiled for you. I think that's the kind of mindset with that younger fan you're trying to tap into. And when it comes to subscriptions, what, what do you think sport brands can learn from the likes of Netflix? I mean, I think, you know, in general, and you guys, I'm sure experiencing it with media as well. I think everybody has to sort of look at, you know, can we just focus more on delivering a high quality product for a, you know, for some sort of nominal price versus relying on advertisers and, you know, all the things that come with that, this sort of incentive to just post clickbaity garbage because, Hey, we just need the views. Um, there's a site in the U S that's growing globally called the athletic. And it was basically, you know, a subscription only we don't intend to take ads kind of model. And they're actually snatching up a lot of the great talent who's getting laid off from the, from the ad based kind of media companies. And so I think, you know, moving, you know, looking at that sort of, you know, letting people consume it the way they want, um, you know, piece, a note that I didn't necessarily make this morning, but one of the other things that Netflix benefits from with that sort of platform is they know what you're watching. They know your habits. They know then how to spend on content. So they know, Hey, people like the, you know, the, a lot of our fans are the people maybe we're struggling to keep young women. We know they, the ones that do stay with us like this. So how do we get more of that kind of content and, and being able to make smarter acquisitions around, uh, around rights and content? Now, um, Twitter has been really interesting when it comes to, you know, sort of viewers being able to catch up, but also talk about what, what they're viewing. It, it felt to me like for a while, Twitter had reached its peak, was maybe fading a bit. Is sport its, its last best hope, do you think? I feel like there's a few things happening at once and it's a little hard to separate out. Obviously, we've been seeing some really positive quarters from them. So we see that at least from a financial standpoint, they're doing a better job of monetizing. And I think some of that has certainly increased usage. 
I mean, the fact that essentially the free world is now like playing out every morning over Twitter with whatever our insane president is, uh, is tweeting at the time. Um, so I think there's, there's that factor, but I think they, you know, when Jack Dorsey came back, you know, to his credit, he very purposefully kind of leaned into live as the thing. Like Twitter is, you know, they, they may not be, comparable to Facebook in many ways, but they are definitely, when it comes to the beating pulse of culture and what's happening right this second, that's the spot. And when they started to figure out either pulling in live content right there or being that companion piece, you know, we heard people talking about it. One of the best ways right now, if I'm a sponsor and I've you know, paid a lot of money to slap my logo on some team's jersey. The best way to really, you know, maximize the return is to have some sort of companion Twitter campaign that's reaching those second screeners, that's giving you a greater opportunity to actually track, well, how many people engaged with my brand around the sporting event that I paid so much to be at? So that's the place of Twitter. What's the place of Facebook now? How should marketers be thinking about it? Is it is it an effective advertising medium? Well, instance? you know, it's it kind of there's the sort of two sides. There's your sort of Facebook dot com and the app and the Facebook Inc. giant massive ecosystem. You know, I think Facebook as a platform is still, you know, certainly an interesting place for advertisers to be or an important place for advertisers to be. And, you know, as frustrated as I have certainly been with some of the the carelessness, it seems with data and, you know, we're still dealing with like these sort of gradual revelations of things that they said they were being honest and, oh, well, we left this part out. And, you know, I think that's, that's rough on advertisers, but you see it's, it's hard at the same time to to just abandon that. It is just like Google. Now, you know, you could, you can, most brands can look at it and be like, there, there would be a $1 billion hole in our revenue last year if we hadn't advertised on Facebook. Maybe we could make that up somewhere else, but where would that be? So I think facebook.com as a platform, you know, or the core Facebook brand is something that advertisers, sh- you know, should certainly be advertising on, but also paying a lot of attention to the demographics. I think it's skewing older these days. I think Instagram is definitely doing a better job of capturing the younger audience, which is of course, part of the, part of the, Facebook part of the big Facebook ecosystem. And they do work together, right? I can start a camp. I can have a campaign that starts on Instagram based on how someone's interacted with it. It can kind of follow them to, to Facebook, to messenger, to some of these other places. So you know, I think you've got to kind of look at how all those pieces can work together. And depending on who your audience is, sort of find the right mix. I'm still very high on Instagram. I think they continue to just have this sort of Midas touch where everything they add in, people really get excited about. We'll see what the IGTV stuff does for them now. This is Instagram television. Instagram television, exactly. And, you know, is that going to be a competitor? YouTube to Twitch, a little bit of everything. Um, You know, when you've got the kind of audience and engagement, I mean, the numbers on how many people are using and reading stories every day. So, um, yeah, so all, all a very long-winded way of saying, I think as much as some of us might be frustrated and love to turn our backs on Facebook, I think we have to proceed with caution, but certainly, you know, be be smart about not just abandoning ship. And you're an informed observer. Now, Facebook obviously probably faced two major issues over the last sort of 12 months or two years, one of which being the Cambridge Analytica data scandal, but the other one being question marks around whether the use of Facebook influenced the outcome of the US yeah, election, yeah. you know, Russian interference. What's your guess? Was it, did it make a difference to the outcome of the election? You know, I think the the point is they were sort of, you know, you saw a lot of the early kind of numbers coming out and depending on what side you're on, especially if you're on the, the conservative side, you're saying, well, look, that's not even that many numbers. And, and then you'd have analysts or that wouldn't have even, I think people discount how much, you know, those how those things spread. I think people discount sometimes the number of impressions you're getting that you're not 
I mean, they, they don't cost you anything because people aren't clicking, right? You know, that's the, that, that sort of pay-per-click model can allow you to reach a ton of people, even if they're not engaging with your stuff. And so if you had to take an absolute guess, your, is your instinct, if Facebook hadn't been available to be used in this way, would Donald Trump be the president? <laughs> You know, I mean, in what was a somewhat, you know, fairly close election, I, it's hard to not think that that was definitely a factor that, that helped a lot. And, and listen, it, I think it's, there's part of you that wants to say, oh, it's the Russians fault. There's part that says, hey, look, he, to his credit, was very adept at how he used social media, some of the things that his team did, whether or not Cambridge Analytica data played a core part in the targeting. You know, they were smart enough to go make hundreds of thousands of targeted messages and get really smart at how they targeted them. It Cambridge was a great Analytica case study. data is part of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it really, they could have entered it at Cannes and probably won a bunch of stuff uh, amidst a chorus of boos. But um, no, it, you know, whether or not you, you know, to what extent Cambridge Analytica and the Russians played the role, um, but, but it, there was a lot of deft use of these platforms and, and, you know, and then I think there's also the fact that whether or not it's coming from them, whether it's coming from some of the Alex Joneses of the world and these guys who apparently the second civil war did not break out in America today, as Alex Jones was predicting on Twitter, um, that I think, you know, it, those guys are spreading misinformation and that travels really fast through the platform. And so I think the important part from a, what Facebook can do is really taking that look at their algorithm, which they've said they're doing and trying to pull in, you know, less news content. You know, they, they, the way things are set up right now, they just really aren't positioned to be a source of news. And at least, at least with the level of responsibility that they're claiming, I think we've got to get out of this place where we give the big platforms this sort of, and it's legal term, but like safe harbor excuse that, well, we can't police what people, no, no, Nonsense. Like you're one of the largest companies in the world and there are plenty of things as we see with GDPR that we could be doing to, to hold them accountable. So if they, if the U S wanted to pass a law tomorrow that said it's illegal to store X, Y, Z pieces of data, I mean, that could be a multi-billion dollar hit to Facebook overnight. So I think that the way they're acting is a little cavalier. Um, it makes, it's, it's probably safe to do in a, in an environment right now where the, the, where Congress in America is conservative and not inclined to go hard at big business. But if that flips and you get, you know, some Democrats who are looking to make some signature high profile moves going hard at Silicon Valley with Facebook as the sort of target could, could play very well in a populist movement to the other side. And I think that's, they're acting as though they're, they're invincible when there are some very clear kind of weaknesses that could be exploited from a legislative standpoint. Now in social media, I think nowadays everybody has a blue tick. So that doesn't have the kind of kudos it once did. It feels to me like the last signal that you're kind of one of the digerati is if you have a really short Twitter handle or Instagram handle and uh, yours is at bunch. So you were clearly very, very early on. Um, that must come with some value, that handle as well. It, it does. And I've had a couple instances of people trying to buy it. I get a lot of the, uh, yeah, you forgot your password emails where somebody's clearly trying to kind of get at it. Um, but you know, I would say the, the ultimate sort of signal of it earlier this year, I had a really random moment where I was sitting back on vacation one day and I, uh, received a cryptic text, text message from somebody I didn't recognize. And it basically said, uh, we want your Instagram handle. And if you turn it over, there won't be any problems. But if you don't, we will, uh, we will release all of your information to the dark web. And they clearly had a, an old credit report of mine with a whole bunch of personal information due to the Equifax breach that had happened earlier that year or the year before. And, and basically proceeded to go on with this whole letter about how they would, how they would try to intimidate me to the point of, you know, essentially 
a death threat. They literally said they had gotten quote unquote SoundCloud rappers killed over this shit. So, because one of the things they've done is they, 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 they swatted people. They'll swat they, people. I mean, they'll, they'll literally, whatever forms of intimidation, maybe it's ordering 50 pizzas to your house and just being a nuisance, or maybe it is. And in some cases, I know these things can extend to like, call the local authorities and tell them I'm, you know, who knows what a murderer or a pedophile or whatever things that could immediately, you know, bring trouble to me, whether or not they're true, you so know, what did you do? So, uh, I, I, you know, consulted with a few friends and I basically, this had all started at like, let's say 5 PM in the afternoon and basically proceeded to stay up until four in the morning, locking down every account I had changing passwords, getting a password manager, do life lock, which tracks your identity to let you know if someone's trying to use your stuff. Um, you know, it was a fairly costly kind of incident. And, um, you know, I think the biggest frustration in it, I have a lot of well-placed friends at Facebook and Instagram. I've, you know, obviously worked with them a ton in my job. And this is, you know, you go into their sort of responsibility and the things we were talking about earlier. They really kind of threw their hands up and were like, yeah, there's not a lot to, we can do to help you call the FBI, which when you report this sort of thing to the FBI, and I have friends who it's happened to, you'll probably hear back about six months later. So I'm on vacation. My family's actually back home in Austin. And I'm thinking... Like, here I am. I don't feel safe about my family. I don't know what to do. And, and Facebook's kind of just completely saying there's nothing we can do to help you because it didn't happen on our platform. Now, mind you, I'm being blackmailed for something that only exists on their platform. So, you know, I think to this day, I sort of look at them and say, you know, for all the resources you guys have, again, you're, you're behaving really reckless. And just for a company that claims to be so user centric, have too many instances where you just show a wanton disregard for the well-being of your users. So I think this is sort of, you know, you look at, you know, companies that engender a lot of goodwill. I think Facebook's in a spot where there's quite the opposite. And you see the ads that they're running right now. They have this kind of tragic air of desperation that, that reeks like a pair of Fake dirty socks. Fake news is yeah. not our friend. Yeah, well, and, and none of them with any level of contrition, right? It's just acting as though this is something that they're a, a you know, a, a bystander in as far, instead of a participant that's in total control. So, Look, I would say candidly, if I were a, a shareholder in Facebook, I would pretty much be calling for Zuckerberg and, and Sandberg to be gone. I think it's this is, you know, to the point of really just, you know, and obviously the share value sort of holds. So it's hard to kind of that's all that people care about. But but I think that, you know, I'm and is that because of their because of what they stand for, their history. Or I, that I they're think not it's the right people. Just, to take just it I mean, I, I think they may have at one point been the right people. But now that you see a world that's changing and just you lose, you lose a lot of faith when we're on what round seven worth of half disclosures. I, I think it's just at a point now where uh, I think they've, they've really handled this so poorly that it feels like major change needs to come. At least for me, if you want to re you know, reinstill, you know, faith in me as it just as a user, obviously, as I said, from an advertising standpoint, unfortunately, if audiences are there, we have to look at it as a platform to use. As a user, I, I feel the only reason I'm still there is because I work in that business and I need to be aware of what's going on on the platform. Otherwise, I would delete my account tomorrow. And just to wrap up the story of the attempt to extort you for your handle, you, you held your nerve, did you? I held my nerve. I, you know, and there was definitely that moment, uh, you know, my wife and others kind of like, just give in. And I, you know, I, and then others who were like, right, but you, you give in. And then what's the next thing they're going to ask you for? Again, the, the pressure point they were trying to use was all this personal data that they, they still had. And so I felt like if I were to just roll over, then it was going to be like, 
still the same sort of thing. And, and, you know, even the threat of we'll release your information in the dark web. Well, where do you think you got that from? Come on. You know, so, so I just kind of felt like this isn't something to to back down on. I don't, I take this threat seriously, but not so much so that I'm going to cower in fear. And, uh, after some threats, they originally gave me 24 hours and I tweeted about this. Now you have 12 in this ominous way. And then I got the 11 hours and I haven't heard from the guy since. So I, you know, I at least feel good about that, 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 you know, there was, I did stand my ground and it went okay, but you, you do now live in fear. As I was going up on stage today, I got five LifeLock alerts. Did you make this transaction? Did you, it was all normal stuff, but you don't like to live in that sort of constantly having to watch your, your digital back. But this is, again, when, when the companies that we trust all this data to and trust you know, our digital life to are sort of, well, what can we do? You know, that's, that's the place we find ourselves. And that's why I would hope everybody would stand up and demand much better. Now, touching on what you were talking about on stage, one of the other things that I thought was interesting because we had a question at the end as well was around the, the, the rise of esports. And I must admit, I'm, I'm trying to make up my mind as I think you are as well, whether this is a fad or something else. I, you know, I was, I was overseas recently and there was a channel just dedicated to esports. And it was, you know, it was footage of a football game followed by, you know, reaction shots of two incredibly bored, emotionless looking players who, had none of the emotion of a, a, a real sports player. Um, and I, I tuned in a couple of times at various different points because what aren't I getting? What am I not getting about esports? I mean, I think a lot of it probably comes back to, you know, did you grow up in and around video, you know, to what extent were video games a part of your life as you were growing up, you know, in the same way that like I grew up playing baseball and basketball and that's where my affinity will always kind of be strongest um, around, you know, that and, and in the same way, even with other forms of entertainment, you know, I'm a comic book nerd and I love the Marvel movies. And I, so I think there's some of that that's just a natural affinity, but you do, as I said on stage, there are a lot of people that are not necessarily, they may be gamers, they don't necessarily play the game that they're watching. Um, so I think, you know, while I, would certainly be hesitant to call it a fad. I think it's still very early days. I think, you know, how that'll evolve. I, of course, we're all very excited about Fortnite and seeing that have a kind of more cultural, you know, mainstream breakthrough. Um, but you're right. I think when you watch a lot of these broadcasts, you can tell it's still sort of an early is, the, you know, is there, are there more compelling ways to, to share this content? I'm sure it will continue to change in much the same way that like broadcast evolved and got better and smarter use of cameras and creating something that was more, more compelling. We've touched on two things there, Fortnite, which, 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 which again is this sensation, which sort of, uh, feels like there's a sort of bunch of marketers and parents who are thinking, Oh, I should probably understand that better than I do. And then of course the broadcast platform for a lot of esports is Twitch. Uh, I guess the tactical question is how should marketers be thinking about Fortnite? And the strategic question is how should marketers be thinking about Twitch? Right, right. So I think right now with Fortnite, obviously until their actual kind of leagues roll out, I think it's really looking at, you know, who are the who are the kind of top players and streamers and obviously at this point ninja has basically become the lebron james of of Fortnite and carries a significant price tag but there's a whole other tier that are you know capturing a lot of attention playing the game on twitch playing with fans and all this and i think looking at those individuals you can sponsor in the same way that you would you know sponsor athlete endorsements i assume teams will come in just as they have in all the esports leagues and that'll create new opportunities and you know we'll see as more of that formalizes you know i think with twitch the important thing to note because I think they, you know, we do oftentimes kind of conflate the two. And obviously, like you said, a lot of esports are streamed there. But, you know, a lot of it is also just that sort of gaming, streaming, social hangout. We're hanging out together. We're playing. We're watching stuff or, or really entertaining personalities who are, um, you know, 
basically just captivating people for hours while they hang out and do silly stuff playing video games and making commentary. So, you know, I think from an esports and Fortnite standpoint, it's it, you know, right or from a Fortnite specific standpoint, it's how do you, you know, kind of find those individuals right now as your way in. And it may be, you know, those individuals may be actual established celebrities. I talked about Juju Smith-Schuster. Um, here's a, you know, a, a up-and-coming athlete who also loves Fortnite, Ben Simmons and Carl Anthony Towns from the NBA. So those guys are potentially interesting ways in for now as people with mainstream notoriety that can start to pull people into that more. I think with Twitch, you know, obviously in and of itself, it's, you know, it's got an advertising platform built in. Um, and I would look at it in the same way you do really YouTube, right? Like that's different. The, the format slightly different, but ultimately it's these very influential creators who have a strong emotional connection to the sort of younger millennial and Gen Z, Gen Z audience. And I think we, you know, I think that's, that's where you start. And, and, you know, I think the point, which I probably didn't hammer home enough on stage today is you just got to start somewhere there. There isn't, there isn't, I mean, there are wrong things to do in terms of not being authentic, but not just sitting on the sidelines deprives you of a really meaningful chance to learn. And so at least dipping your toe in the pool and starting to have a way to figure out what works and what doesn't starting to build a genuine relationship, ideally working through, you know, agencies and individuals who understand the space, um, to make sure that you, you don't, don't make those crucial missteps that, you know, a particular gaming communities can be very opinionated. I believe the most downvoted post in the history of Reddit was a game developer, very defensively trying to, to, you know, respond to critics, uh, they questions. were trying to justify loot boxes, if I remember right. That rightly. was exactly it. That was exactly it. So, you know, as an advertiser, you don't want to come in with something that becomes a lightning rod for criticism. But I think there are a lot of ways that, that you're seeing advertisers that are adding genuine value, for sure. Well, start, speaking of starting somewhere, you unfortunately have to stop somewhere, which is here. Kyle, thank you so much for your Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been great talking. And thank you for having me out here. It's really been a lot of fun. And that's all for this week. Thanks for joining us. Toodle Pip.